Saturday, October 13th. So uh, women, please mark your calendar. Um, all registration for this conference is going to be online. So um, currently uh, it's on our website. And then also an email will be sent to all our women uh, at the church with the link as well. Um, Christy Scarpa, you saw in the video, uh, she's serving in nursery right now, but she will be at Grace Connect right after the service to just answer any questions you might have um, about it. So uh, space is limited, and so it is going to be for Grace Church um, women at this point, just expecting uh, a, a pretty big turnout. And so you want to register and get that ticket early. That's why we're announcing it here in June. Um, it will be $25 uh, to cover just cost of the uh, conference as well as a book that every woman who attends will receive. So uh, don't wait. Do it as soon as you can to reserve your spot. And uh, looking forward to seeing how God will work through that. Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue pew Bible somewhere in front of you, close to you. Uh, we'll be on page 843. And we are in the middle of this chapter. And, and really, this is the smack in the middle of the entire Gospel of Mark. A Gospel that we have started back in January, going verse by verse, um, walking through. And uh, we're going to kind of start to notice this morning that the sense of urgency in this Gospel is starting to pick up. There's a tone that we're going to notice uh, that is starting to rise. Things are going to get more intense. Things are going to get more real. It's like a, like a pressure cooker that's getting ready to explode. And, and, and this morning is going to be interesting. Because Mark is going to put these two stories side by side. And it's going to show us the difference between hypocrisy and a struggling faith. That the two might appear similar in a lot of ways on the surface, but they are completely different at their core. So, so what is the difference between just blatant hypocrisy and a genuinely struggling faith? Maybe you hear that and go, actually, they don't sound similar at all. I'm not sure how they would ever seem like the same on the surface. And so let me give you an illustration um, of how this, I think, kind of plays out. Um, let's say, hypothetically, of course that yesterday you were at the mall to get a Father's Day gift. All right, little last minute, things got away from you, it's Father's Day, got to get to the mall. And, and, and let's say you're, you're walking down uh, the center of the mall where you have all the kiosks. And at these kiosks, you have men and women who are uh, looking to flag people down, right, to give their pitch to their product or their service. And we're Jersey people, we know this well. And, and, and so what we know about kiosks Right, rule number one, mall 101, don't make eye contact <laughs> with the person at the kiosk table. Because once you do, like, you're done. Like, you're just, there's no chance. Like, you're, they're, they're just on you. They're, they are professionals. And so you are in a conversation immediately. And let's say they stun you with, like, I got the perfect gift for dad. And, and quick, that stunned you because that's why you're there. And you, you shot him a look and game over, all right? So now you're, you're theirs for the next few minutes. Well, let's say I saw you with this kiosk person and... And let's say they're showing you a watch or, I don't know, a tie clip, whatever you're getting your dad today. And, 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 and I just see you intensely asking questions about it, right? Like, like how does this work? Can you show me this? What, what colors do you have? And, and, and you seem to be, like, really into it, really weighing a purchase. Now, two things could be true here. You could be really struggling with this decision. Is my dad going to like this? Should I buy it? Or you're just completely faking it. 
all right? Like, I, like because you want to feel the man or the woman feel better about themselves and their product, and, and they hooked you in, so now you got to give them a couple minutes. Like, I still haven't figured out what's the nice thing to do here, right? What, what's the right thing to do? Do you act all into it, knowing there's no chance I'm buying this, and then just let them down gently, or do you just be like, wow, I'm not interested in that at all? Uh, I'm going to move on. Like, that's just always a weird situation for me. But, but he, on the surface, it could be genuine asking questions. And underneath, you don't know, is this person just being hypocritical? They have no interest whatsoever. Or are they weighing a purchase here? On the surface, things might seem the same. But at the core, it's different. Maybe you're just thinking of, what's my exit strategy? How do I get out of this? I need to go to the food court, right? But... but Here's the question in our text this morning. What's the difference between blatant hypocrisy and a genuinely struggling faith? We're in Mark chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 11 to 21 this morning. We'll start with verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. So we start with blatant hypocrisy uh, Jesus had been outside the borders of Israel for some time. We've talked about Mark. He's not really into details. He's not really into smooth transitions. He just jumps from one scene to the next. Doesn't really care about telling you how long Jesus was outside of Galilee and the borders of Israel. But we just know it was long enough to uh, kind of be northwest and then come around the Sea of Galilee to the Decapolis. Kind of just engaging the non-Jewish population where he taught, where he performed miracles and and healed people. Remember last week, he just came off feeding the 4,000 there in the wilderness, in the Decapolis. And then, and then we find uh, that he just, we are told by Mark, he got into the boat with his disciples and headed to the district of Dalmanutha. Location of this district is completely unknown to historians and commentators today. There's no current place that goes by that name. Matthew's gospel and his parallel account referred to it as the region of the Magadan. Still not really sure exactly where it is, but um, in general, uh, there is agreement that Jesus and his disciples went from the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee and then crossed back into Israel's borders, back into Jewish territory. And what is the first thing we hear upon him coming back? The Pharisees came up and sought to argue with him. If you recall, Jesus and the Pharisees debating was, was the last thing we heard before he left Israel, back in chapter 7. And so apparently time did not heal this conflict. Or perhaps you can resonate with that. Have you ever had um, conflict with somebody, a family member, a, a good friend, a, a co-worker, and you realize, you know what, I just got to get away from this person. And so you don't really kind of deal with it full on. You just kind of let some time and space go by, hoping that would heal all the wounds, that, that cooler heads will prevail. And then, and then you see them again. And maybe at the next family party, may, maybe at a work event, and it's just like, bam, we're right back at it. 
hotter than ever. Nothing quieted down. Like that is the thing he left arguing with the Pharisees. He comes back now after however much time passed and again arguing with the Pharisees. Like that's what I mean. Like the pressure cooker is just rising in this gospel. Tension building between Jesus and the Pharisees. But do you notice? See, the Pharisees, they're creative. They don't outwardly come out and accuse him. They, they, they need to be smart about this. You know why? Because Jesus still has the affection of the crowds. Jesus has done nothing wrong. He's, he's healing and he's driving out evil. And so, so the Pharisees can't accuse him because they know that they don't have the crowds on their side yet. So they need to be creative. And so they need to appear to be genuine and searching for belief. They're concerned with appearance more than reality. Their hearts are hardened and cold, but outwardly they are blatantly hypocritical. So they come before Jesus and they say, we're, we're seeking from you a sign. And it comes across, that could be genuine. Jesus, can, can you show us a sign? We, we, we need to be sure you are who you say you are. This, this is a big deal to us. This is a big deal to our nation. You're saying some pretty serious things. So, so we just, we need to have wisdom and discernment here. Can you show us a sign? But Mark tells us the behind the scenes scoop here, right? He, he tells us they were coming to do it, to test him. Meaning, meaning to expose him before the crowds. They, they need some ammo in their belt to move on with their desire to destroy him. So this is a setup. They're trying to corner him. Jesus, show us a sign from heaven. You see, the problem is not asking for a sign or, or the need for a sign. The problem is the heart behind the question. All throughout the Old Testament, signs were used and displayed to authenticate someone's ministry. Signs that showed that their authority was from God. Exodus 4, when, when God came before Moses to tell him, you need to go deliver my people from Egypt, what's Moses say back to him? He says, listen, no one from Israel is going to believe me. In fact, I don't think they even really like me. So, so I need a sign, Lord. I, I need a sign to, so, the, so that they will believe me. And God doesn't rebuke him for that. What's he do? He, he gives him signs. He goes, all right, you see that staff in your hand? When you throw it down, it'll become a snake. And when you pick it up, it'll be a staff again. You, you take the water in your hands from the Nile and, and dump it onto the ground. And when it hits the ground, it's going to turn to blood. These are signs. Signs that are meant to show, okay, Moses is getting his authority from God. You go through all the prophets, major prophets, minor prophets, and, and, and these men are giving signs to Israel to show they're from God. It authenticates them. It shows they are legit. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking uh, to the church in that city, and he's trying to help them how to reach the different people in their city, right? How to contextualize. And, and he says, listen, Greeks seek wisdom, but the Jews seek signs. Ancient Greeks, leaders in philosophy, they want these kind of drawn out, deeply rooted arguments. And so you need wisdom to engage with them to prove God's existence. But the Jews, they seek signs. They want powerful signs, un un undoubtedly because this is the way God has re revealed himself in the past. But, but here's the craziest thing about this whole thing. Jesus' entire ministry has been giving signs. 
signs from heaven, all the miracles, all the healings, all the power of evil, they are signs to prove he is the one. That is all he's been doing. And in the midst of this, the Pharisees are still coming up to him and like, you know what, we could just use a sign. We just need to see something, something a little more, something a, a little more sure. And Jesus knows their hearts. He knows their hypocrisy. And so he doesn't respond the way you might think he would have if you were just kind of listening to this back and forth. Mark tells us he sighed deeply. That should sound familiar to you. Right? It's the same word he used just a couple weeks ago before he healed the man who was both deaf and mute in the Decapolis. It was, it was just he sighed deeply at a, at a grief and it exposed his compassion for that man because of what he has been through his entire life. All the suffering he has done. He's, he's a victim of this broken world. And so he just sighed before he healed him. And now Mark uses the same word. To describe Jesus' response to the hardness of heart of the Pharisees. Jesus is not taking pleasure in these arguments. He's not getting a rise out of putting these guys in their place. He's heartbroken. For his own enemies. Men who are seeking to destroy him. And he knows that. And yet, it's still, he's heartbroken for them. He's in pain because of their unbelief. They're blinded as a result of a fallen, broken world where where even those who are engaging with Jesus in the flesh can't see it. Like they're seeing, but they're not really seeing. And they're hearing, but they're not really hearing. And we know this because Jesus says no. He refuses to give them a sign. He says, truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Why? Why? Why now? Why why does Jesus stop now? Because he knows signs will not help you if you don't have sight. Signs are only useful if you have the eyes to see them. So our family, uh, right after the service this morning, will be piling up into our fully packed minivan. Still getting used to that, all right? Laying my pride down. We are a minivan family now. And we're hitting the road. And we're going to see Rochelle's family in Wisconsin, an annual summer trip that we do and look forward to. And, and over the next two days, you know what I'm going to be doing a lot of? I'm going to be looking for signs. Over and over again. Signs that point us to highway ramps. Signs that point us to rest stops. Uh, signs that can take us to a park where we can just run our kids ragged so they'll actually sleep in the car. Signs to a hotel tonight that has a continental breakfast. That's important, all right? I'll be looking for license plates from every state because everyone who knows how to road trip knows you have to get, try and get every state on a road trip, all right? My wife still refuses to play with me, all right? So I'm riding solo. That's tough to do while driving, all right? Caden's got a couple years left, and then I can threaten him and make him join me, all right? You got to see the front of the 18-wheeler, because sometimes it's not the same. Okay, all right, but moving on. Signs. Signs of bad weather coming on. Should I stay on the road? Signs. Signs. For 15 hours broken across two days, I'm looking for signs. And of all the different signs, you know what they all have in common? For them to be any use to me, 
I need sight. If I close my eyes while driving, which will lead to far other problems more than not seeing signs, but at the very least, I'm not going to see anything. Because signs don't help you one bit if you don't have sight. And this is why Jesus refuses. Not because he wants to keep it hidden from them, but because he knows nothing he would do in that moment would do anything to help them. Because they're blind. They are blinded by unbelief. They are products of their own hardened hearts that refuse to believe he is the Messiah. They've approached Jesus and they've already decided it can't be true. Jesus, this guy can't help me. I already know. Um, we're better off without him. We're fine without him. And, and so they come in seeking the sign, already knowing he's not the one. So here's what's important. You notice what Jesus does? He leaves. Do you see that? This time, Jesus doesn't do the whole back and forth with them. He just sighs deeply, looks at his disciples and says, fellas, let's go back in the boat. You know why that's ironic? We know Mark loves irony. Because you know what that is in and of itself? It's a sign. It's a sign of judgment. If you persist in blatant, hypocritical unbelief, where you only approach Jesus and define him on your terms, even if you appear to be genuine, you will get what you want. Jesus will leave. And you'll be left to your, be your own functional savior to make it on your own. Jesus leaving is a sign of judgment against those hypocritically looking for a sign. So they get back into the boat and they leave to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And now let's turn to the second story, verses 14 to 18. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? Second, struggling faith. From blatant hypocrisy to now struggling faith. Jesus is, is back in the boat with his disciples. Again, we don't know how long they're in the boat, how long is this ride, but he recognizes a teaching moment. You ever have that where you're with somebody and something happens and you go, this is a teaching moment. I, I could use this. And so, so he has a moment with his disciples. And, and again, the irony, he tells his disciples to look for a sign. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He says, watch for a sign. Men, keep your eyes open. And he illustrates this sign by carrying forward this theme of bread. We're just talking about bread each and every week in the book of Mark, aren't we? 
recently. Like, like bread has been this kind of primary physical thing that Jesus is using in his teaching to reveal a deeper spiritual truth to his disciples. He, he did it with feedings. He, he now says, watch out for the sign of, of leaven. Okay, so what, what does he mean? <laughs> what, what, what does he mean, look out for the leaven? Leaven, many of you know, it's an ingredient used uh, uh, for, to help batter or dough rise when you're making bread. Like, like yeast, yeast would be a type of leaven. And, and a batch of bread only requires a little bit of leaven to spread through the entire thing. In the Old Testament, part of Israel's law was to keep the feast of unleavened bread that Moses kind of instated for the nation of Israel. And, and this was a feast that was supposed to be a remembrance of their, of their deliverance from Egypt. It, it was a celebration, a feast that would celebrate God's grace and deepen their dependence on God's grace as the only reason why they were delivered. That that remembrance should be carried forward into their lives. That, that is only by God's grace that we can be sustained. It's only by God's grace that we can be delivered from sin. Because this is meant to show them and, and help them remember their ancestors. They did not get themselves out of Egypt. They didn't wake up one day and go, you know what? Slavery stinks. We should get out of this. After 400 years. No, they were enslaved. And they had no power to just kind of pick themselves up and get out until God miraculously threw Moses through the plagues, just came in and got them. He delivered them, and it was only by his grace. And this is what Jesus is getting at. He's not concerned about bread and how bread is prepared. He, he's just saying, listen, it takes just a little bit of leaven to spread through the whole batch. Just like it takes just a little bit of self-righteousness to destroy faith. It's all it takes, just a little bit. Just a little bit of feeling like, I have what it takes. I can do this by myself. I, I can release myself from the entanglement and the slavery of sin. I, I can get myself out. I can save myself. I'm good enough. He says just a little bit of that spreads like wildfire. And it destroys genuine faith. Here's what's most interesting about that. You notice who he gave as examples? The leaven of the Pharisees and then the leaven of Herod. That should seem strange to us because Pharisees and Herod seem to be complete opposites. They didn't even like each other. One is this highly religious, strict elite of the Jewish nation. And then Herod is a worldly, pagan leader of Rome. But Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of both. Why? Because while they appear different, the reason for their unbelief is the same. They are blinded by self-righteousness. And it has a religious bent to it, and it has a worldly bent to it. But at the core, it's the same sin. For the Pharisees, they're self-righteous because they think they can control God by the way they live. They are so good. They are so perfect. They can follow the law and then even add traditions to the law and, and just be meticulous about it. It's impressive how disciplined they are. And then for Herod, he's self-righteous because he has no regard for God. He sets his own rules. He lives by the thought that if it feels good, it must be right. Just give it, give it all to me. 
But at their core, it's the same. Again, in the name of religion or the name of worldliness, they are both convinced we're fine without God. Blinded to their dependence on the grace of God. And therefore, when you have no need for the grace of God, what's the use of faith? Just a little bit of leaven destroys genuine faith because they're fine without it. So Jesus says, watch out. I'm pleading with you. It just takes a little bit of this mentality to destroy everything. Just a little bit of I can do it on my own. But our brothers in the boat, they're struggling to understand. See, they're also blinded, but it's a different kind than the Pharisees. It's, it's a struggle, but it's not blatant, hypocritical unbelief. They, they hear Jesus say this, and as, I, as we're reading this, we know how far we've come so far in the Gospel of Mark. Maybe we're thinking, perhaps this is the breakthrough moment. Finally, the lights are going to come on, but instead... They just start talking to themselves. They hear Jesus say this, and they go, you know what? You only brought one loaf. He's talking about the bread. Dang it, I knew it. He gave us seven baskets left over, and we only brought one loaf. Levi, this is on you, brother. Like, you were supposed to bring the bread. And he's like, no, James, I did it last time. And so they're just kind of arguing with one another, going, he's talking about the fact that we don't have bread. Maybe this is a longer boat ride than we thought it was going to be. It's, it's a moment of if you're reading, you're like, oh, this is the moment. This is the moment. Nothing. Just still, don't get it. So we have both these groups dialoguing with Jesus, and Mark intentionally puts them back to back. The Pharisees and the disciples both don't get it. Both seem to be blinded to Jesus and can't see him for who he is. On the surface, it's similar. But at their core, they couldn't be further apart. And the reason why Mark shows us that it's different this time is the reaction of Jesus. Last time, when the Pharisees didn't get it, he just goes, all right, I'm out. But now his disciples don't get it, and he is relentless with his disciples once he gets, uh, perceives their confusion, and he just blitzes them with six straight questions. Why are you talking about the bread? Don't you understand? Are your hearts hardened? Can't you see? Can't you hear? Don't you remember? And you might be tempted to think while reading this, like, Jesus, you got to chill, man. You're being kind of harsh with these guys. Like, they're trying. Like, like, they're, they're, they're hanging by your side. Like, hardened heart? That's a tough thing to say to them right now. They're fragile. When the Pharisees didn't get it, who, who want to destroy you, you let them off the hook and you just went away. But now your own disciples don't get it and you're just jumping on them. Like, why the interrogation? Here's what Mark wants us to see. The two cases may seem similar on the surface, but they are far different at the heart level. And Jesus knows their hearts. The Pharisees blatantly disbelieved. But the disciples had a desire to know who Jesus was, to to believe in him. And they, they were just struggling through it. And Jesus knows their hearts. And he responds accordingly. 
He responds this way to his disciples, not because he doesn't care for them, but it's literally the exact opposite. He loves them. He's chosen them. He's he's one day going to entrust the spread of the kingdom to them. So if that sounds backwards or confusing to you, um, I thought of a a story that happened in my family about 20 years ago that I think I literally probably not thought about in 20 years until studying this passage. My older brother was in middle school, and he was trying out for the basketball team. And we grew up in the promised land of Midland Park, right across the border, Evelyn. All right. Um, And Midland Park has a no-cut policy because they never have usually enough kids they need to cut. All right. So you go out for the team, you're on. You're not getting cut. But in this middle school year, my brother was there. Um, they had a, a, a greater number of kids try out than they thought. So they decided, okay, we can't cut them. So we're doing an A team and a B team. And so they had tryouts, right? And, and it was a new coach who was coming into the school who, who did not know about any of the kids' ability coming into tryouts. And so I don't know how many days they had to try out, but I, I remember my brother coming home and just feeling so down because he was saying, I'm not going to make the A team. And we asked him, like, why? Why do you think that? And he goes, the, the, ch- the coach is just harping on me. Anytime I make a mistake, he just singles me out. Like, he's harsh with me. And, and then there's other kids, and they make the same exact mistake, and he says nothing to them. He just doesn't like me. I'm not making the A team. Well, the tryouts end, and, and the list goes up, and he's shocked to see he made the A team. And he's happy about it, but he's just kind of confused. So he kind of shares this with the coach. And, and the coach told them, the reason I was harder on you is because I've been doing this a long time. And I can tell who has the potential and who doesn't. I was hard on you because I knew you had it in you to do better. When I've seen some of the other kids make the same mistakes, I, I didn't make a big deal of it because I knew they were giving it all they had but I knew you could do better. And he said, you shouldn't be nervous when I coach you hard. You should be nervous when I stop. And that struck a nerve with me. I couldn't have been 10, 11 years old at the time, and and I literally don't think I've thought about that for 20 years. And that is what I I think the Holy Spirit just brought to mind studying this passage, This, this truth that we know when we think about it, that we tend to address the people we care about more than the ones who don't. Right? Parents discipline their children for something they do, and they won't discipline other children, not because they love their kids less, but because they love their kids more. This is what the author of Hebrews was getting at when he said in Hebrews 12, 8 through 11, you can follow along on the screen. He says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This had to be a painful moment for the disciples. But Jesus is doing it because he loves them. Because he's not just going to let them go. Because he knows they are 
genuinely struggling to have faith. And so what Mark wants us to see is the difference between a struggling faith and blatant hypocritical unbelief is internal. It's at the heart level. It's your motivation. And you might fool the rest of us, but Jesus knows the difference. It's one thing to struggle with the truths of God and the claims of the gospel and the promises of Christ in such a way that, that we are really searching for answers. And then there's a way to fake it. There's a way to fake believe. There's a way to fake struggle that really just has more in it for us. And it exposes the hypocrisy in our hearts that is rooted in blatant unbelief. So here's how I want to close. To take this truth we've seen in these two stories back to back, the difference between genuine desire and hypocritical desire, and just lay it down on top of our lives. When it comes to how you're going to approach Jesus, it's a simple question, but a hard one. What's the motivation of your heart? Every sign in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is meant to, and meant to point to and make much of Jesus Christ. But signs will only help you if you have received the grace of sight. See, there's a way to see where you don't really see, and there's a way to hear where you don't really hear. But by the grace of God, he provides real sight and real hearing to those who pursue him. There's a way to seek in order to find, and there's a way to seek where we've already decided we won't find what we're looking for, and it's all about your heart. All about your heart-level motivation, because if you have decided, brothers and sisters, that there's no chance, then it's over. There's nothing to find, because you've already decided that. But to those who search for truth, who, who recognize there's more to this life, who, who feel a desire to find, and, 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 and then once you find to stay on the path, there is real hope for you. Well, hope in what? Well, what should we hope for? What are we looking for? Let's read the final verses, 19 through 21. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000... How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? We saw the blatant unbelief of the Pharisees. We saw the struggling faith of the disciples. And now the passage ends with Jesus as the bread of life. Jesus as the bread of life. And Mark just leaves it open-ended. It's in some ways the most interesting and kind of most haunting thing about this passage. The dialogue ends there as far as we read it. The disciples don't respond. The dialogue won't pick up again next week. It ends right here. Do you not yet understand? Jesus brings up the feeding miracles again. Like we can't get away from them. Because it's in these miracles that the most vital truth is found in the whole first half of the Gospel of Mark. That Jesus is the bread 
Like, here we are again. Like, it's kind of a broken record again and again. Like, Mark is finding all different ways to get us to the same central point, to just keep putting it before his readers. Jesus is the bread. And a genuine heart that is struggling to believe, but earnestly seeking, will find, by God's grace, that Jesus is the bread. So I was thinking and praying over this you, and just asking myself the question, why, Mark, why are we just seeing this over and over again? Why is this the metaphor that Jesus chose? <laughs> and you know why? Because it's the answer for everyone. Think about the physical side of this. When you think about food, when you approach a meal, you want two things to be true of that meal every single time. You have two desires going into every meal. You want it to be enough, and you want it to satisfy. That's what we want, right? You, you want whatever you choose to eat, that that is enough for what I needed in this moment, and you want it to satisfy. You want it to taste good. And if that is what we want in physical food, how much more when Jesus is constantly saying, I am the bread, do we find that in him? When Jesus says, I am the bread, he's saying, I am both. All questions about Jesus that we have are going to boil down to two things. Is he enough? Is Jesus enough? Of all the needs that I have and all the struggles I have, is he really enough? And will he satisfy? Will he satisfy what I'm looking for? And so let's just, let's just flesh this out, right? If you, if you were someone in here this morning, and, and, and let's say you were either struggling to receive the gift of faith, or you're a believer who is struggling to persevere in the faith. A lot of times those fights can feel like the same thing. And, and you're struggling to persevere, or you're struggling to believe as a result of something you are lacking. Maybe right now it's good health. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe you just want a good friend. You just don't have any good friends. Maybe it's financial security. Maybe it's children. Whatever it is that we are longing for in life and we just don't have right now, and for all of us, that's something. Maybe it's just that you're struggling to get rid of all the shame that you feel of the life that you've lived. You're, you're lacking feeling any confidence in yourself that God would want anything to do with you. You know what Jesus is saying to you? He's saying, I'm the bread. I'm enough. I really am enough. You need to remember that I am enough. Lean into me here. Lean into my grace. Come deeper into my presence. Don't drift away. There is real joy here. I'm enough. And let's say you're somebody on the totally opposite end of that spectrum this morning. Man, you have just been blessed by beyond measure, especially by the things in this world. Like you just have a perfect health. You have a good job that you love. You, ha you have a healthy marriage and you have healthy children and, and your bank account is plenty full. This is still the answer for you because to you, Jesus is saying, I am the bread and only I can satisfy. Those things that you have are great gifts and you should be grateful for them, but don't forget, they are terrible gods. 
and they will utterly fail you if you want to seek your identity in them and your full satisfaction in them. Brothers, sisters, remember, in all the good, only I can satisfy. So whether you have nothing or whether you have much, Jesus' message is the same. I am the bread. That's why we're seeing this over and over again. I am enough. Only I can satisfy. And this is what he was so desperate for his disciples to see and understand. This is what he wants us to see. It's all about him. It's about who he is. It's about what he has done in in taking our sin upon himself and, and going to the cross and actually giving the grace to open up our eyes to see that he paid it all. And he gave himself to deliver us. And he justifies us the moment we place our faith in him. And that's real. And that's enough. And that is satisfying. So how about you? Do you understand? If you are rooted in unbelief that has already made up your mind that Jesus can't be the one, even if it hides itself behind a fake search, God will get in a boat and he'll sail away. But if you genuinely struggle in your pursuit for faith and in your continuance in the faith, God will complete his promises to sustain us and bring us home. Let's pray. Father, I pray you just give us the eyes to see this message you have placed before us in the gospel week after week after week finding all different ways to get us there. But Lord, let our hearts worship that Jesus Christ is enough. And Jesus Christ is fully satisfying more than anything in this world. Lord, let us cling to that truth. Let us live in light of it. And let your name be glorified through it. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.